0: Welcome back to The Bible is Art, where we explore the literary artistry of the Bible. And in this week, we're going to look at the literary art of the Ten Commandments. Some time ago, the philosopher Alain de Botton's School of Life released a video called How to Replace the Ten Commandments. He said that the Ten Commandments maintain an extraordinary hold on our imaginations. But the problem is that they sound peculiar today. They were for a particular people, and thus they're a bit parochial. In their stead, he offers his own Ten Commandments. And before you watch this video, you should watch his, and I've linked that in the description. Even though many of his commandments relish Alan's gentle and careful character, They shouldn't replace the Ten Commandments of the Bible. And that's because they're inferior. G.K. Chesterton said that before you tear a fence down, you probably should figure out why it was put there in the first place. So let's look at the art of the Ten Commandments and the ten reasons why they're superior. First, length. The Biblical Ten Commandments are 172 words, compared to Alans, which have 614. Alans are much, much longer. Well, why does that matter? Perhaps the Ten Commandments have such an extraordinary hold on our imagination because of their pithiness. It's difficult to hold something in our imagination if it won't fit. summary of the moral law was composed not simply to provide moral knowledge, but to provide it pedagogically. Not just a list of good things to do, but it was designed for consumption and memorization and mulling. Second, moral reasons. Alan's Ten Commandments do not give us any reason why we should follow his commandments. The Bible's Ten Commandments, by contrast, begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The reason why they ought to follow these commandments is because God freed them from slavery. It is quite a more anemic motivation to listen to Alan simply because he said so. You see, a moral life requires both reasons for obligation, as well as robust motivation, a requirement certainly met by manumission from slavery, as in the biblical Ten Commandments. And when we are faced with grave temptation to evil, cheating on a spouse, extorting money at work, simply having a list of guidelines without any strong account of obligation won't do any good. A list, even a profound and elegant one, may be wonderful, but that doesn't provide a binding or exciting obligation. Third, moral epistemology. Perhaps the strangest part of Elan's commandments is that we're never told how we know them, It's as if someone strolls into your office and tells you a list of instructions without sharing with you who they are or on what authority they offer the commands. The Ten Commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God. That is how we know these commandments. By God telling us. Therefore, we can expect that deeper insight or clarification on moral knowledge will come from the same source. Should we or ought we go to Elan for further insight? Did he get them from somewhere else? We're simply left to wonder. Fourth, form and order. Ontology. Like every great work of art, one of the marks of greatness and skillfulness is matching or connecting form to content. For instance, Caravaggio's Narcissus communicates the endless moral circularity of selfishness, the inability of Narcissus to pull himself away from his own reflection by visually creating a circle with the arms of Narcissus through their reflection in the water. The form reflects the content. Or the architecture of a Gothic church designed as a cross to structurally communicate their central identity as followers of Christ, literally being found in the cross. And the Ten Commandments were written with the same attention to form and content. I'll show you two ways. First, the Ten Commandments are arranged ontologically and causally. That is, the first four commandments are toward God and the last six are toward humans. They are ontologically ordered because God is first in being and importance and human beings second. And it's causally because a good and flourishing relationship with people issues from is caused by a harmonious relationship with God. This is communicated structurally in the first two sins of the Bible with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. The author of Genesis structured these two scenes so similarly so as to encourage comparison. As Victor M. Wilson has noted, both scenes have a prospect of evil, entrapment, sin, interrogation, deflection of blame, confrontation, curses, and banishment. So what are we supposed to learn by these similarities, by comparing these two scenes? The first sin is a sin against God, eating from the tree against God's instruction. The second sin is against man, killing a brother. And the author communicated them in such similar ways to teach us that there's a relationship between them, and it's causal. That is, the break in the relationship with God causes a break in the relationship with man. Social sins are a result of theological sins. So the arrangement, the form, communicates the importance and a causal order. Fifth, form and order, internal and external morality. The form communicates the relationship between internal and external, public and private actions. Notice, the first and last commandments are internal acts. Having no other gods, commandment 1, and coveting, commandment 10. Now those can have external manifestations, but they're intrinsically internal actions. All the other commandments are public external actions, creating images for worship, taking God's name in an empty fashion, murder, false testimony, and so on. The Ten Commandments move from private to public and back to private. So why structure it this way? Well, the whole moral life has the same form. The private instructions—no other gods and no coveting—enclose public instructions. And this mirrors the precise relation between private and public morality. Public acts are generated by private dispositions. And public actions, in turn, shape private dispositions—internal to external internal. Sixth, comprehensiveness. Connected to the previous reason, the biblical Ten Commandments include both the internals and externals of the moral life, and both are necessary for a good social arrangement. Alan's Ten, by contrast, are solely internal. Seventh, prohibitions and prescriptions. Alans 10 have one prohibition, saying what you should not do, compared to the biblical eight prohibitions. Now, one might assume that it's much better to stay positive and describe what to do as opposed to a more dreary what not to do. But solely prescription does not take seriously the existence of great evil. While Alain's list at first reading feels like a warm list of motivational aphorisms, they remain silent on the architectural moral evils such as theft, murder, and deceit. And one begins to wonder, in the end, whose moral list is more parochial, more designed for a specific time in history with its specific fads and fashions. human nature. The only repetition in Alain's commands is the phrase the good person and for good reason. He wants to foreground the image of the good individual whom we might aspire to emulate. The problem is when his conception of human nature is one that it is immature and thus lacking something as opposed to a human nature that is corrupt. Those are actually the only two options you have when you're thinking about what's wrong with humans. It can only either be a defect, a deficiency, or both. The biblical conception of man is that he is both deficient and defective, but Elan only conceives of the former. But Surely the genocidal and totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, let alone the rest of history, would be sufficient evidence that Hitler or Pol Pot were not simply immature, but evil. Crooked and corrupt, not just careless. And you certainly would treat and interact with an evil person differently from a childish or immature one. Ninth sanctions. Perhaps the most conspicuous absence from Alain's list is any reward or punishment. That fundamental principle that we've come to recognize as structural to the economic life is no less true in the moral. Without incentives, there is neither motivation nor action. And once again, we're left wondering why we ought to abide by Alain's moral arrangement at all. Tenth, effects. The Ten Commandments has produced such moral magnificence as Jesus and Mother Teresa. Well, Alans has presumably produced himself, and I'm left to wonder if Alans' moral code, where we treat wickedness as childish and allow murder and illicit desires, will have more longevity than one of the most influential documents in human civilization. And if we judge a moral code by the results it produces, what do we make of the hubris that one must have to not only replace one of the most well-known and trusted moral documents in human history, but replace it with the statutes of one's own devising? How should we judge that? Perhaps a more humbling effect is desirable. Thank you so much for um, watching the video this week. I really appreciate it. Um, let me know if you have any questions or comments or thoughts about the Ten Commandments. I would love to hear them. Uh, if you'd like to support the channel, that would be lovely. Uh, uh, Patreon.com slash The Bible is Art. Or share the video with someone who would appreciate it. Thank you so much.